Are you a data-driven business looking for resilient infrastructure, connectivity, and the power to compute sustainably? KO Data's scalable state-of-the-art facilities support the mission-critical workloads of life sciences, biotech, and AI startups in Cambridge. To find out how we can help host your compute, get in touch at kodata.com contact. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So, James, how's your week been? It went a little bit awry from my original plan, unfortunately. So uh, I got an insect bite over the weekend and uh, I got an allergic reaction to it. So I've kind of been laid up all week uh, on antibiotics, trying to get the uh, the infection under control. So uh, uh, the week has been a bit disrupted, lots of working from home. But we did have the Everything Blueprint event with James Ashton on Wednesday at the Bradfield Centre. So uh, great to have James uh, in Cambridge after talking to him a few weeks ago about the book. And uh, he was signing copies uh, at the Bradfield Centre this week, which was great. Um, How has your week been? Well, before my week, sorry about your bites. That must have been (laughs) deeply unpleasant. Glad you stayed at home, not being horrible, but there you go. (laughs) And, you know, also talking about bugs, Cambridge Angels pinged me a note at the start of the week about a company called Spotter that are here in Cambridge, and they have a solution to bed bugs. So I know yours weren't bed bugs, but if anyone wants to know, there's bed bug tech in Cambridge as well, um, if, if you can actually believe that. We'll have to do an episode on bug tech. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that Spotter would be very happy to do that. Anyway, so yes, thank you, my week. I think the big thing for this week was it was the Innovate Cambridge event, which I missed you at. Yes, really disappointed I couldn't make it, yeah. Yeah, it was great. You know, it was a really good mix of people. I think they had about 500 people um, registered to go to the Guildhall in the centre of Cambridge. And it was a really packed room and actually a good mix of people. So you had kind of the regular lot that will always go to these kind of events. But then you had the really big companies, the innovative startups, public sector, third sector. Um, So a really good mix of people and actually people not just from Cambridge either. So it was interesting. Mm. Did it take you like an hour to walk through the room because you're this podcasting celebrity now? Or but uh, of, of course, and they, we didn't we didn't have a banner up, so we didn't have our mug shots all over the place. But actually, I did speak to loads of people, and you can imagine there's so many of the people that we've talked to on the podcast were there as well. So yeah, it, it was really good, and obviously we did the episode last week with Innovate Cambridge, and I think they're really keen to to keep working with us on that and keep getting the message out there because that was kind of the underlying thing you know innovate cambridge are the conveners the collective needs to actually make all of these things happen and george freeman was there right 
He was, yes. So George Freeman is the Parliamentary Undersecretary for DSIT, which is the Department of Science, Research and Innovation, for anyone who doesn't know. Um, He gave about a 15-minute address, and I'm sure it'll appear on their website at some point in time. And it was really interesting because he was talking about the overall innovation agenda and how he's been positioning it with government and DSIT. And he basically said that there are three major points – co-investment, clusters, and Cambridge. So that was kind of, you know, really powerful message for us straight away. Three Cs. I mean, that's kind of refreshing because we've heard a lot about levelling up over the last few years. So it's it's good to hear that government actually recognise the importance of clusters when it comes to innovation. Yeah, and it, it very much was about clusters and places and about using the link to Norwich to Oxford for us um, about building nice places so he, he made comments about you know Cambridge should never be a car park that just grows for the sake of it but a place where everyone would want to live and he, he very much talked about all around um, the country as well and he did talk as well about the interdisciplinary kind of side of it which is not just technology but what's our relationship with things like manufacturing in Peterborough and other parts of the the UK as well so his his final rallying call was this I see Cambridge as the cluster at the heart of what we've got to do for the whole nation so I close by saying look when Cambridge leads the world follows the nation also follows I'm looking to you I'm here today to say let's work together and show the clusters around the country what you can do by linking together, yes, being a bit competitive, but mainly being collaborative, and let's show the people of Cambridgeshire that they are lucky to have this here, and we're here for them to give the next generation the hope they need. Thank you. I think we could literally have done a whole episode on just um, the the people that commented um, in the various panels. Um, But a few highlights. Um, Gentleman, Dr. Ant Rostran, he talked about when Microsoft were deciding where to put their first research centre outside of Seattle and they chose Cambridge and have never regretted it. So that was a really powerful message. We had ARU, Anglia Ruskin University, talking. And actually, it was really surprising to a lot of people in the room. They're really huge credentials on providing a pipeline of talent and working with the local communities. So I feel feel that's something we could probably come back and talk about too. We had Georgia Longabardi, who we've spoken about many times from Cambridge Gun Devices, and Poppy Gustafson from um, Darktrace, who actually, they were on separate panels, but independently they said practically the same thing, which is that impact is all about delivering at scale and not selling out early. And they both talked about where they were up to on their different journeys. So that was really interesting. And I think one thing that, I mean, there were a few things that, it wasn't necessarily the content, but it was more like a dynamic thing. There were so many people that spoke that are now coming into Cambridge. So we know Tabitha's coming from London, Dermot's over from, you know, from Ireland. Um, Jane Hutchins moved up to run the Science Park. Debbie Prentice, now Vice Chancellor of the University of Cambridge. Peter Freeman, who's looking at Cambridge 2040. So all of these people are coming into Cambridge. And it actually really feels that that external view is what will make 
Innovate Cambridge and this growth vision actually become a reality because it's a it's an inside out view rather whichever way around it is I'm probably getting it confused but I, I kind of found it it really interesting to get those different perspectives. Just some fresh thinking and kind of uh, not being aware of what's happened before gives you freedom to try new things right yeah yeah absolutely and there was i'll tell you what there was a really humbling part of it as well which was not intentional i i don't believe but just just bear with me in a, in a moment so we talked an awful lot about bringing the community in and you know making sure that we are proud and enthusiastic about what we're doing and it has an impact on on the people that actually live and, and maybe don't work in the in the tech sector. Um, and, and Daniel Zeichner was there. He's the, the local Cambridge MP. He made a really good point that not everyone is coming at it from the same starting place. And I know we're going to talk about that on a future episode in The Wealth Gap. But the reality check for me was, you know, yes, we were all encouraged to be proud and to take a pledge and to go and make these things happen, which I absolutely support. But as I walked out of the building, it was raining and there was a row of homeless people that were being fed by volunteers. And, you know, that to me just really drove home that point that, yes, we can have growth, but we've got to, we've got to kind of level up in our own area as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, as you say, there's a there's an episode coming up shortly where we talk to some local uh, groups that are proactively working right at the kind of coalface of some of the social uh, problems in Cambridge. So uh, can't wait for you to hear that episode shortly. Yeah. But overall, it was a super positive event. They did a great job, you know, really strong messages. And now let's galvanize and, and make these things happen. Yeah, and one of the announcements that took place at the event, which was covered by national media, was the announcement of a new partnership between the innovation clusters in Cambridge and Manchester uh, to build on existing links between the two hotspots. We'll be talking much more about Innovate Cambridge on the podcast and how that continues to drive the innovation agenda forward. But I think that's a really interesting sign of like that geographic tie-up, even though they're not particularly close to each other from a kind of geographic perspective. Obviously, they're both hot spots of the right kind of innovation, the right kind of tech talent and scientific talent. And it, it kind of also builds on the, the comment that Tony made in the uh, in the interview with Tony Quested uh, from Business Weekly, where he was seeing more Cambridge companies collaborating or opening offices in Bristol as well. So I think that's a really interesting development of this kind of uh, national collaboration as well as just the continued growth of cambridge as a standalone cluster yeah absolutely um so a couple of other things happened in the news this week um, that we can share second mind um cambridge-based automotive tech pioneer we talked to gary in episode 50 they have scooped a major international award um the award is the auto tech ai innovation of the year award from market intelligence company auto tech breakthrough so congrats to gary and the team over at second mind yeah and also some news from uh, another recent guest gerard grek you remember we spoke to Gerard on episode 51 and we were talking about his uh, experiences with uh, Tech Nation and delivering 
tech programs on a national scale. Well, it's now been officially announced that he's now running a new program uh, within Cambridge Enterprise called Founders. And this is really to help university alumni start and scale tech companies. Uh, so that's a really exciting development. And uh, again, I'm sure uh, both Gerard and Cambridge Enterprise will be guests that we'll be continually going back to on forthcoming episodes because there's just so much happening there. Yeah, and I have reached out to them as well to say, come on, let's get you on the on the podcast um, and talk to you about it. So the last shout out um, I've got, I think we is to Mantle. Um, they have supported the first year of the podcast and they've renewed their support for the second year. So huge thanks to them. You know, it really does make a difference um, to the running of the podcast. So we're, we're very grateful for all of our supporters. So that's we've had quite a long chat so far, haven't we, about Innovate Cambridge. Thank you, everyone, for bearing with us. But it is really, you know, it's really interesting stuff. And we thought, uh, we hope you found it informative. But we better get on to this rather meaty episode that we've got coming up. So James, would you like to do the introductions? Yeah, I mean, this one was, a, this is a great conversation and one I really enjoyed. I mean, I enjoy them all, of course, but I really enjoyed talking to Darren Garvey and Alan Patterson from Beyond Math. They both have an incredible track record of being involved in tech-based startups and larger corporations, which have often led to acquisitions. So we had so many questions for them about building companies, being attractive to potential acquirers, going through that kind of due diligence process differences in the US and UK startup culture, the risk profile of US versus UK investors, and so much more. So let's get started. So Darren and Alan, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for spending some time with us today. Why don't we start with, uh, maybe you could just introduce yourselves so we can get a flavor of your kind of early career, where you've started and how you've ended up in Cambridge. Okay, so I'm Alan, um, like one of the co-founders of Beyond Mass. Um, from my background, you know, so I started out uh, in Glasgow. I did electrical electronic engineering as a degree, um, and then went down to York uh, to do a PhD. Um, it's um, it was the the title was neural networks for radar target recognition. So I, so I get to say I've been in like machine learning for over thirty years. That was back in nineteen ninety two. Um, and I was in um, academia, I guess, for a while. I, you know, I did a postdoc in Liverpool um, and kind of got tired of like the kind of academic problems that we were solving and wanted to get into the real world. Uh, and I was writing a lot of software at that time at university and, and uh, realising that you know, university software is not all it could be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like I was looking for a job where I said, well, let me get into like a commercial environment and learn how software development is really done. Um, and I actually found a job at Nokia okay. in Cambridge in yeah. the business park across the road uh, and went down there. And they were developing like telecoms, which is very formal software development. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and so I, I, I was there for a year, intentionally for a year. I kind of planned to do a year of formal software development and then I wanted to get into startup world. Um, and so about a year after I, I left and joined a startup in Cambridge called Nexan, they were doing like um, medical monitoring and like home monitoring devices. And I was uh, doing machine learning for them to do like ECG analysis and things. Unfortunately, that's one of the startups that, w that, w that wasn't successful. They um, they were we were looking for Series B funding when the dot com crash happened, right. and so money dried up. And uh, timing is everything. And, and, and time is is everything. Yeah. 
Uh, and so I went across to uh, a startup in Oxford um, uh, doing similar things. So it was uh, machine learning for medical monitoring. And they actually started, they applied the same algorithm, machine learning algorithm to industrial monitoring for jet engine monitoring. Uh, it was just different signals, but the same algorithm. Uh, and they actually ended up getting acquired by uh, Rolls-Royce. Um, who are using it for the early warning of failure in jet engines. Mm. Um, so that was like my early days in startup world. And, uh, you know, that really appealed to me being in small companies and trying to solve real world problems and, yeah. you know, very different to academic, academia. And it was clearly my path. Yeah. Uh, and so most of my career has been in startups like that. And we're going to delve into that because you've got an amazing track record. Yeah, I went on to, um, we'll go into yeah, it we'll um, And yeah. I, you know, so I went on to a number of startups and then uh, all the way up to large companies like Google and eBay. Um, and then that leads on to, to you know, we left um, our last startup uh, to, to set up Beyond Math about you know, just over a year ago. Hmm. And Darren? Yeah, so yeah, Darren Garvey, I'm co-founder of Beyond Math as well. Um, I, mean, I had quite a different path into it. So I, I did physics degree. I grew up in uh, on the Wirral, kind of plastic scouser. Um, and uh, and all my, my so I have no, no formal education in software engineering or AI. I was very much just like a, a hobbyist hacker. Um, I guess lucky in, in that I, I was just trying to, I was really interested in optimizing and um, automating what I was doing and just kind of fixing problems with computers. And there was a lot of open source code out around so I kind of just read lots of code mm. and kind of learned how to program that way um, and then kind of got into got I managed to get a job up in uh, Ellesmere Port um, and as I've basically been in a, a whole bunch of different startups since then I mean it was my second job that brought me down to Cambridge where in fact Al and I first worked together um, I, I've been in loads of different startups in completely different areas as well I guess AI has not been the core. I kind of really sort of see software engineering as a trade. It's like a craft, you know, and yeah. you're, you're kind of building a toolkit, you're learning mm -hmm. continually. Um, and just trying to get a bit of bigger picture of how, how, how you have these tools that fit together to solve bigger and bigger, more complex problems. Um, I mean, that's what got me into AI. You know, as soon as I was starting to look at huge amounts of data, then AI, machine learning, deep learning, turned out to be the best tool for for kind of understanding that. Um, and it's still the case. I mean, still a lot to learn. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting area, isn't it? Because you could say you, you're both technologists in the AI space, but actually you then delve deeper. And so is it AI or is it machine learning? Or is it deep learning? And it gets, you know, it kind of gets more and more complicated, the, uh, yeah. more specific um, the further you go down. So so talk us through a little bit more about the skill sets. I love that you said you're started as a hobbyist hacker you know so we've got from one extreme to a 30 years of machine learning so yeah. tell us a little bit more about those technical skills that you've developed yeah sure so i mean you know i sort of software engineering system design architecture optimization that you know they were like my initial bread and butter you know distributed systems that was kind of pure software engineering and it was really i kind of got lucky and at true knowledge we got into ai and that was kind of the symbolic ai um, which is very different to the deep learning side of things. So, you, you know, you've got the symbolic AI and then you've got the connectionist AI, which is the deep learning. Th those are two fields that are about as old as each other, but they've always kind of come in and out of favor. Uh, and then machine learning is, is a, a whole bunch of different tools. I mean, I think when 
I don't know when it was, when the, the AI started being used as a term. I think there was a bit of a fight back originally by people saying, no, it's deep learning or it's machine learning. It's not AI. And I think that fight was lost pretty quickly. And um, it's just easier to talk about it. It's just AI. <laughs> One, one of James's favourite questions is about AI being in the headlines at the moment. How much does that drive you mad that, you know, this has been out there for decades and now all of a sudden everyone's having a rant about AI? And and understanding that, you know, like for you and for a lot of the companies that we talk to, they'll say, we're a machine learning company. We look at tiny ML or, or what, you know, they're quite specific. Um, do you think it should be that specific or conversely, does anyone care? Because actually the people who are buying this, they just want something that works and solves a problem. That's a good question. I mean, I, th I think, yeah, personally, I know some people get really hung up on the semantics and the terminology. I, I, I don't really mind too much because it's just the way it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, whether it's AI or not, or I think shouldn't really matter because ultimately it's just, it's a tool. We call it AI right now. It's deep learning. It may shift and change. You know, in five, ten years' time, it may be a completely different set of technologies. And ultimately, that doesn't really matter. The, the, what matters is what problems you can solve, what tools you use to solve it. Um, I mean, that's always been the case with programming languages. You know, they come in and out of favor. Symbolic AI, connectionist AI, they come in and out of favor. And I personally don't really mind what tool you use as long as it's the right tool for the job. Yeah, I mean, I think as, as well, there's like part of the pushback is part of the history. You know, the, originally there was AI in the 50s and 60s, which was more symbolic. You know, and they created the Lisp programming language for artificial intelligence. And we had the expert systems in the 80s. Uh, and then in the 90s, like when I started my PhD, there was a new wave of funding for connectionist systems and neural networks. Um, and that was like a different branch entirely from the symbolic people. Um, and so... The, the machine learning started then, really, um, and, and there was a way. You know, the neural networks weren't that successful in the early nineties, and we moved on to, you know, better optimization and support vector machines and other things. But it was all data, you know, learning from data. When deep learning was successful in the ImageNet competitions in the like the late two thousands, you had the, the media hype then about how this was like um, superhuman performance, and and everything started taking off at that point. The media started calling it AI, mm. and so we, you know they had people who had been in it for twenty years and had the well, we're distinct from AI because that's the old symbolic system from the seventies and eighties, and and machine learning is very different. And bringing that back again and calling machine learning AI was, you know, that's where that kind of friction came from. Um, but fundamentally, as well, machine learning has 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 advanced since those early days as well, and so like the mixtures of like the, the, the chat GPTs today are doing a lot of the symbolic style or, or the it, it solves the problems that the symbolic systems and the language and reasoning and things like that that they used to do. So AI is a good term for, for where machine learning has been advancing far beyond what we used to do just with learning from data. Everything's always advancing and changing and um, and AI is, what is the term we use today and, I'm, you know, mm. That to me seems the, the, the correct term, given that we are the things like the language models have advanced to today. I think for people who've been paying attention, who've been in the field for the last, say, 10 years, it, it's been clear that it's been progressing towards where we're at now. So it's it's kind of not a surprise that we've got to where we've got to. I'm, I'm a little surprised how quickly 
it's happening, you know, but the fact that ChatGPT exists, I think the research kind of was pointing to that happening at some point. I'm surprised it only took him a year to go from GPT-3 to ChatGPT. That's quite impressive. Um, I mean, it, it's moving so fast. It's impossible to keep track of everything these days. Uh, but it's also interesting, like talking to a lot of the software engineer friends I have who who don't do AI, that there's still a huge amount of skepticism from them about whether it's actually a useful tool and whether it's even worth investing time as a software engineer and learning it. And I mean, ultimately, everyone should. You still think we're just at the beginning then in terms of you've still got substantial numbers of software engineers that aren't skilled in AI and are still slightly skeptical. So we are just at the beginning of something. Yeah, I mean, one thing we did at, at Google in the early days I was there was we created a course. Like Google wanted every software engineer to be able to build their own machine learning. And they created a course, machine learning crash course. They eventually published it on developers.google. Uh, and I was involved in setting it up and teaching it to product managers and managers and software engineers. And they wanted everyone uh, to be able to create their machine learning models. And they think everyone should. If you're a software engineer, you should be also learning and be capable to do yeah. you know, machine learning. Um, and I think that's... I think that's the right thing. If you know software and machine learning shouldn't really be. If you're doing software, you should be doing machine learning these days as well. Tool belt, going exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and just to flip back to kind of you two together, you've you obviously met, and you've obviously got some kind of chemistry between the two of you because you've followed each other to a number of different companies. Did you always end up thinking you were going to start a company together? Uh, yes, I mean we think very alike. I think, and I think we have not like a similar attitude to uh, a similar desire as well to like solve complex problems uh, and similar interests um, and so I think as we've gone through the, these various companies we have continually thought about uh, starting a company uh, ourselves uh, and actually interestingly one of the companies we, no, we, we went to eBay together uh, and we were actually starting a company then and we went to eBay for funding because we thought they would be a great customer, and so right. they might actually fund our company, and they eventually they actually convinced us to to join them and do it there. Okay, um, it was like an ex colleague who was there, um, and so that's you know so that was our first probably serious attempt at, at setting up our own company. We were looking at conversational AI back then. You know, we we come out of EV and and we were looking at better ways of doing that. And so yeah, so early on we were thinking of um, doing our own company. Um, uh, and it was fairly natural. We're constantly talking about ideas and how to do things differently and seeing opportunities yeah. where, given what we know, what, where we could apply it, constantly talking about that. And, and you know, and Beyond Math came out of one of those conversations, you know, where we didn't hardly thought about it. Yeah. In hindsight, it's kind of, you could say, it was always going to happen. And yeah. actually, in hindsight, I could say, well, actually, I've always been trying to learn enough to kind of go off by myself, yeah. you know, save up enough money to actually not get paid for six months <laughs> or however long it takes to actually get something off the ground. It's like true with Cambridge generally, like, you know, there's a lot of people with just interesting ideas mm. and a lot of people to like bounce ideas off. Some people have different appetites for actually taking a risk and actually going for them. Mm. But I mean, since Evie, what, 10 years ago, I guess a group of us has just been constantly bouncing ideas and a few of them have kind of got closer to being a real thing. Mm. And then for whatever reason, you kind of, you go, ah, okay, there's another company doing it or various reasons why you just think, okay, now's not the right time. You keep moving on. 
eventually an idea sticks. Mm. I guess you're kind of describing some of the benefits of being in a cluster. You know, you've got a high density of software engineers and technical people, the university and the kind of, you know, the, the kind of academic um, element of what's happening in Cambridge. It, it just kind of all comes together in that soup, doesn't it? And you've got the right kinds of people to have the right kinds of conversations. Yeah, I mean, it's what's kept me here. When I was looking for jobs, that the one I found here, the one that brought me down here, I was looking for jobs anywhere in the world, you know, and it just so happened that the the most interesting idea and the most interesting people were here, mm. and for I guess the same reasons, I've I'm still here. The the Cambridge soup, as as James has just <laughs> yeah. just called just it, copyrighted. Yeah, <laughs> love it. And I'm interested in the dynamic between both of you. Do you generally? Do you agree? Are you on the same page? Do you challenge each other? You know, is, it, is there a certain dynamic? You're, you're nodding and shaking here. Yeah, I mean, dialogue, discourse, we're always arguing. We think alike, but in complementary ways, and, and, and we, we, we make progress through arguing through points, and, you know, like taking devil's advocate and, and arguing through points, and, um, and that works really well. That's like a really valuable relationship yeah. to have in terms of building a company because you're continually pushing the edges and the boundaries of what's possible and what's right and what's wrong and disagreeing and, and justifying why you disagree. So, like, in terms of discourse and, you know, how you make real progress, I think, in companies, when you're pushing the boundaries and you're trying to invent new things, you, you know, you have to argue and, and and have discourse and push, you know, what, justify why why you think you're right or why you, why you think he's wrong or uh, and continually push against each other. I make just agreeing and, and, and without really justifying and really pushing the argument, you know, it doesn't really help. Uh, and, and especially in startups, like I say, when you're trying to invent something new, it really takes a lot of, of, of that. And so I think we we got on really well at that. You know, we first of all we get on really well, you know, personally, but we also very good at like pushing each other, uh, mm. uh, you know, to justify everything and 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 argue all the time, yeah. you know, which is robust engineering discussion. That's a good term for it. And do, do you encourage that robust engineering discussion within the team as well? Is it does it go throughout the business? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, not not. Ex Explicitly, you know, in that you can't tell people they have to disagree, but but I think we just naturally do. Um, I mean, one thing I've I've long thought is that whatever opinion I come up with, if I think I've got a good idea, it, he'll instantly be like, "No, nah, it's crap for these reasons." I think similarly, if if I think now nah, this is a terrible idea, he might find a good a good side of it. Um, and maybe it's a bit of a Scouser Glaswegian kind of thing, but I think we've we've never had any qualms about being extremely blunt with each other without ever taking it personally. <laughs> radical candor. Radical, ra yeah, exactly. Radic <laughs> radical candor, yeah. I mean, I guess one thing I remember someone referring to us once was like, we're like an old married couple, which I thought was kind of initially insulting, but then realized actually now it's probably not a terrible description <laughs> well well as an old married couple myself i think it's all right I don't, don't don't take offense at it mm. so how does that ethos help you build teams you know how do you carry that through i mean i think the key point and we are huge believers in this with teams is about empowerment of the team open open transparency and, and and empowering the team the team for us are equals and they they question us just as easily as we question them and we really encourage you know empowerment of them so they you know, 
uh, you know, another term for it. You know, the, the, and Google used to use this, the lunatic should run the asylum. Uh, and we are massive believers in that. So we are never telling people what to do or what opinions to have. It's all like open, you know, they can decide what to do. Our job is, as leaders for them is being open, transparent about what we're doing, what we're trying to achieve and what problems we have and how much runway we have <coughs> and let them solve the problems themselves and decide what we need to do. And so when we are arguing with each other, we're all arguing with them and they are learned to be quite open with us as well. And, and so it's almost like equals in that terms of, uh, and so you get this kind of combinatorial gain from everyone having discourse with each other and really working out everyone's opinion and, and thoughts are equally valid. We've done it multiple times now mm. in building teams in Cambridge. We did it for eBay. We did it for HomeX, both highly successful teams. Yep. Uh, and we're doing, and we're already seeing it with our new hires here mm. that, that it's just incredibly powerful when you have that openness and transparency. So they, they feel comfortable to argue with us, even though we're the founders and we've hired them. Uh, I mean, that must be really attractive as a as a potential employee to have that ability to contribute uh, and to shape things. Because, you know, as we all know, there's no shortage of options for people to go work in big companies in Cambridge. So, you know, that must be one of your competitive advantages of having that style of culture that attracts the right kind of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're surprised by it when they come in. You know, there's, some people are uncomfortable with it as well at first because they tend to be waiting to be told what to do and sort of deferring yeah. to you. And then they get quite comfortable with it and then they actually feel empowered mm -hmm. and say, actually, I can decide what we do here. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the right thing to do and I'll stand up and say it and then other people will, will have a discussion around it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they very quickly learn that they are in control of what, of what we do as a company and we're all trying to solve the same problem and we're all, we all have a fixed runway, you know, that we're all on the same boat together. And um, and it's surprising how quickly they learn and how, how like, progress accelerates really, really quickly when, you, when you're, everyone has the same input. Um, Alan, do you think that there's a tipping point though, though, because that works really well in the startup world? you know, in the businesses that you've been, is there a point where actually you can't do that or, you you know, you've got to change that dynamic? I, I strongly, I might be wrong, but I strongly think no. Okay. I think it's one Pick of those things. some radical yeah. candor. It, it's, well, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. you're arguing with me. <laughs> um, so, why? yeah, so, so the, 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 the why, I think I think there's, it takes a huge amount of effort to kind of maintain it because you, you do get people that come in and, and go, okay, well, mistakes might happen. Someone might make the wrong choice and go down the wrong path. Um, and someone might know better and go, ah, if I'd known that, I could have fixed it for them. And there is this kind of natural tendency to to have more and more organization, more and more kind of structure and hierarchy where the, the more senior people are, are on top and the more junior people who know less are down below. Um, and that, I, I think, is, is it creates a massive bottleneck a bandwidth problem in terms of just actually communication. I mean, it's a cliche, Netflix have... Uh, they 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 nailed it, and that it's like you hire smart people and have them tell you what to do, as opposed to the other way around. Um, small small teams in engineering have been so successful, hasn't it? Rather than big, you know, cumbersome organization and that kind of continuous shipping. An example of the biggest organization, you no know, Google do exactly this, and they run exactly like this. The you know, the lunatics do run the asylum. And I think that's in like Laszlo Bloch's book. He he was a people VP of people operations there. And when I was there, there was 80,000 employees. Yeah. And, and, you know, and 
managers and leaders never tell engineers what to do. They just they just need to be transparent and un, unblock and help them do what they want to do. Yeah. But it's always from the bottom up, and it works superbly well. The you know the the, the rate of progress I saw when I was there just was yeah. you know, amazed me. Um, and, and that's eighty thousand. So it can work all the way to the top. Mm. Uh, what the problem you tend to get is with managers will come in and say, "But oh, you know, but how do I know they're going to do the right thing if I'm not telling them what to do?" Um, uh, and, they, and so you, you have to learn to seed control. And for leaders and managers, that's difficult for some people to get their head around. Mm. Um, but when you do it, you see the benefits of it. Mm. Uh, and your job as a manager or a leader is really to help people, and, you know, and to unblock them and be and give them the context they need. Um, and, and play your part in it. You know, you're obviously contributing as well as a leader, but but it works all the way up to Google. So I, I don't think it is necessary that you know you you need formality, you know, and management and hierarchy and that thing that works in a small startup can't scale up. Mm. I think Google proved otherwise. Good point. Um, so James talked uh, a little while ago about your laundry list of of success. So let's let's run through a few of them. So correct me if any of these are are not right. So EV Technologies acquired by Amazon, now part of Alexa. UView TV, now um, part of BT TV. Grapeshot acquired by Oracle. Homex acquired by Service Titan. Spider.io acquired by Google. Any more? <laughs> Yeah, I had Oxford Biosignals. It was my second startup in Oxford. That was acquired by Rolls Royce, part acquired by Rolls Royce. That was my uh, second startup. So, 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 what what have you learned from all of those? You know, and is this the ambition you've got next? You you're just going to keep doing this? There's one aspect which is like, why? What have I looked for in companies? Like, one thing is is finding companies that are just really smart people. Um, like the smartest group of people I can find, and they're solving a real problem, a problem that I kind of believe is a real problem. Um, and that's kind of one of the, the signals I've always looked for in, in companies. And that's kind of ended up working out, right? If you get a group of smart people, they're empowered to to do the right thing and they're trying to solve a problem and they're grounded, then it's not guaranteed to work out, but there's a higher probability of it working out. <laughs> It's interesting there because I guess what you're saying there is you're effectively interviewing the companies rather than you're going as the as the candidate. You know, you, they've got to convince you that they're worth working for. Yeah. yeah, and that's not to say that I always felt like I was guaranteed job because no, I was no, coming no. with very few qualifications. No. But yeah, it's it should be very much. But it's a the right mindset, thing. isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, because I think again another thing I think, you know, when you talk startups and entrepreneurship, everyone gets obsessed with the founders, but obviously not many people in the entire tech workforce ever get to be a founder. So I think it's really interesting like, to understand as an individual contributor or as a leader of a team within an organization, how you spot those opportunities and what kind of signals you're looking for. Because I guess a lot of the people listening to the podcast might never ever found their own company. So we can, we'll certainly come on and talk about you becoming co-founders of your own business. But I think it's quite interesting to spend a little time just thinking about it from a non-founder perspective. I mean, for me, I've I, I've always looked for interesting problems first. You know, it's a, I, I I'm kind of interested by 
you know, you see new ways of doing things. So, yeah. you know, I, I like I, I don't like more of the same. So I'm always looking at how things, how we can transform things. Mm. Uh, and it's why I, I continually look at startups because they're continually trying to do something in a different way. Um, and so, you know, if I think back to my, my very first startup, they were trying to do telemedicine. It wasn't done then. We didn't have smartphones back then. Mm. And they were building their own PDAs and doing telecoms and trying right. to you know, monitor heart failure patients in the home. Yeah. And nobody was doing it. You know, it was a modem you used to dial up to, to send the data to the cardiologist. And I thought, well, we can do this, right? This is possible today. And, and yet, we're not. And so I could see a real opportunity to do something different. Mm. Um, and that's been true in everything I look for, you know, it, you know, especially in startups. It's just, you know, how do we take something that's possible today, might be possible today, mm. and transform something in a, in a way that actually has impact on people's lives, you know, mm. a, a different way of doing things, something, you know, improve things for the better. It sounds kind of cliche, but it's um, no, yeah. but it's the real core of it's the of value, right? Intellectual challenge and the technical challenge of doing something new, yeah, uh, with something you believe in, in terms of the application of that, yeah. Never, never thinking about the exit or the possible of an exit. That's just, I guess, that goes in hand in hand because if you believe in the if you believe in the the product and the the product market fit, then that comes down the line anyway, right? Yeah, very much. I think, like, yeah, I mean, I've never optimized for salary. <laughs> And I think companies shouldn't really optimize for exits. I think it, and that's not because I, I was born rich. Like I was earning nothing in my first few jobs. But but it's it's more like if you if you just work with good people on a real problem, and you just try and do as good a job as you can and learn along the way, um, then everything hopefully will just work out. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think value in money comes out of what you're doing. It's not the goal of what you're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a result of creating value or creating change or creating new ideas or products that, that creates value, which creates money. And so if you're focusing on the money as a starting point, I think you've got the wrong goal. You know, if, mm. if your goal is to exit, then how, how does that tell you what to do to exit? Whereas if your goal is to create a new way of monitoring health patients, um, then you've got clear guidance as to what you're what value you're trying to create. Yeah. And exits come out of that. You know, they, yeah. You know, you're creating value that other companies that are then interested in or yeah. other investors or buyers are, are interested in acquiring that value. Yeah. But your goal should always be, what am I actually creating that's worthwhile? See, I like that. It's, it's quite a challenge because we often hear that you should start with the exit in mind, which you're going completely the, the opposite, which I would expect from our conversation so far. So when do those triggers appear? Is it based on, you know, people actually buying the technology? How, how do you actually spot those triggers then? That lead to the acquisitions. I've had different ones. I've had I've had like um, like the very first one was with Rolls Royce. They were protecting the technology. They were funding the research at the university, and they wanted to protect. They wanted to stop GE getting access to the technology, so they want to protect it. And there was quite a close relationship there. Others, you know, you you're just working. You're creating your value, you're creating your company, and you're starting to get noticed. And it, it, and they contact you. So. It, it's not too different, actually, to like VCs when you're trying to raise. You know, they'll contact you and you'll set up a meeting and you'll talk and you'll you'll sell what you're doing to a VC. Um, and like most of the exits I've been involved in have been like that. You know, an acquirer calls you and says, "Are you interested in M and A talks? Uh, we, we really like what you're doing." And then you'll have a call and discuss, you know, what you're doing. So it's really. It's never been in our plan in any of the, the startups we've done that where. You're focused on how you're going to exit. You know, they've contacted us. 
I mean, you've only got so much mental capacity. So you can either spend that time, you know, thinking about the competition or thinking about, you know, the other people that might try and buy you. Or you can just kind of spend all your effort on, on actually building value. I'm sitting here thinking of multiple companies that we know that are they're juggling so many balls. You know, they're trying to fundraise or they're trying to hire or they're trying, mm. but actually they focus on the technology first. You know, on the need, what's what's the issue, and then the technology that will serve that need. Then that's you know probably very sound advice. Yeah, I mean, I think when like with exits and things, you you need to have a, a awareness of the landscape, especially when you're talking to VCs and trying to raise. You know, so you have to have like potential exits that could be on the companies that are in your space that might be interested and even all the way up to IPOs and what the potential outs are. Like we say, you're never driven by those by those goals. Hmm. I guess a similar related question. With so many kind of successful acquisitions, were you never tempted to just assimilate into the acquiring company and build a career within somewhere like a Google? Because, I mean, obviously the opportunity would be endless in terms of the directions you could go. You've always wanted to come out and then start over fresh. Yeah, that's a really good question. And some of our some of my colleagues from like Spider are, are still in Google mm. and worked their way up the chain. Um, for me, uh, there's a part of an acquisition where I think you should only be selling your company to someone like Google if you believe you can achieve more through, through doing so. And therefore, you can still work to build that up. And it's a reasonable path to you know, scale up much larger. Inside Google, you know, you have a, a lot access to a lot more funds and a lot more compute and everything else that allows you to scale up to huge scale. For me personally, I, I'm always interested in that going from nothing to something, mm. that early stage of a startup where you're changing something and not necessarily optimizing and, and, and going for large growth. Yeah. Um, so my interest has always been in that initial spark, I yeah. guess, and, yeah. and how do you create the change? Mm. Uh, and so I, I've never really been interested in a long career in a single company. I'm always looking for problems to solve and new things to create. And mm. so it wasn't that difficult to to go off and try something new again. Mm. I, I mean, I've ended up kind of leaving. I left Evie around the time the Amazon acquisition ha was happening. I left Grapeshot at the time the Oracle acquisition was happening. And that was kind of coincidental. I mean, I wasn't intentionally leaving at that point for any particular reason, except I think a lot of people in, in software, they're constantly keeping their eye out for opportunities. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, opportunities just come around that you can't you can't turn down. And that's just happened to be at the time. But, you know, one common theme with most of the companies I've been at is, is they've been quite chaotic and it's not been obvious that they're going to work. In in the days of, of Eevee, I mean, we, we got like a bridging loan. We had six months. You know, we got bacon butties on the, the an infinite Coke, uh, um, Coca-Cola on the <laughs> on the on the table every morning and we were just we were just hacking you know non-stop trying to get trying to get that working and it ended up being a huge success yeah but it was not at all obvious that that was going to be the case yeah so i i think you've got to be willing to accept a level of chaos some people like you know they get to different stages in their lives when yeah. when they're like okay this would be quite nice actually i'll i'll take the stock I'll let it vest and I'll I'll kind of, you know, be part of a bigger organization. I and mean, there's a lot of people that are still at Amazon. A lot of people from Grape Shot still at Oracle. You're making me think I'm getting close to retirement. Maybe I should be doing that. <laughs> Maybe this is not, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. 
those experiences, they've given you some exposure both in the UK to the startup ecosystem and also the US. Did you, did you find them to be different and, and why? Being an engineer in a startup, say, in the US and the UK, I don't think it's like any different. It's the same chaos and the same problem solving and the same kind of environment. I think where the big difference comes in is more the, in, the investment and the appetite for risk. I, you know, I think there, there's, there's not a difference in startup culture in terms of like it's more formal and more you know, risk averse to be in a startup in, in the UK. You know, they're, they're just as, as chaotic and, and with a short runway. Um, and, you know, I like to describe it as like, uh, especially when you have a short runway, it's like, it's like jumping out of a plane without a parachute and you're hurtling towards the ground and you th- and you need to grow wings before you hit the ground and you think you know how to do it, but nobody's ever done it before. <laughs> and it's a bit like that. And that's the same in the UK as in the US and, you know, that kind of culture is the same. And the, the engineers I know in either environment are very similar. I, I think where the big difference comes between the US and the UK is when you is the VC culture, the, inv- no, the actual investment culture. Yeah, but, that, that probably plays into ultimately what happens in startups, you know, in, in how big a vision you can maintain as you as you continually fund. I mean, it's, it's, I guess, long been known that a lot of the really big, successful UK companies, they end up getting more and more investment from the US. And, you know, a lot of the time even move over there. Mm. It's kind of a shame that, that there isn't the same appetite here mm. to kind of just think big. And, and put money behind big ideas. Mm. Um, I mean, it's one thing we notice a lot talking to investors, that that difference between the UK or slash European, very much, um, you know, let's get revenue, very small changes, incremental build up. Let, don't don't raise too much money. It's, it's the, yeah, the attitude. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's much, much more, you could say, I, I imagine they would say mature, mm-hmm. risk averse kind of approach. Um, but then you know we you speak to West Coast or East Coast VCs, and you know you come away from the conversations just thinking, "Wow, I thought I thought I was thinking big, but they're just thinking next level big." Yeah, and you know it's it's a lot easier to pare down an idea <laughs> into a simpler, more tangible thing, but you you've got to be able to think big enough, and and that's so true with the us and that's true with our fundraising you know the, yeah. our lead investors us you know we're looking at our next round and all the investors that are have an appetite for what we're doing and 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 think big are are all us or mostly us mm. well so we do we do have creator fund as a investor in our pre-seed and yeah they're they're uk based but they feel quite us in their kind of ambition their outlook interesting yeah we spoke to them on a previous episode 31, I think, if anyone wants to look that up. Um, I mean, we're kind of jumping around, but I think I want to carry on on that kind of conversation because we haven't actually really spent any time, you know, talking about Beyond Math yet. So let's talk about that right now because obviously, you know, this is your focus right now, obviously. So, um, you know, tell us tell us what Beyond Math does. Um, so we're, we're applying AI to like a numerical simulation. We, we say like AI first approach to simulating the physical world. And it really started out from ideas that we were seeing in the most up-to-date research in AI coming out in, um, from the likes of DeepMind and, and OpenAI, where we were, we were seeing progress in areas like biology and drug discovery, and especially in like using machine learning for computational problems. And 
you know, my background in engineering, you know, like I said, my PhD was in radar and we used to do numerical simulations of radar. And it used to be on the Cray supercomputer at the university and, and it would take like a week to run the simulation. And I remember thinking, you know, that um, surely AI, you know, if it's, if it's having an impact in biology and, com- and, and beating, you know, being, being able to solve problems that computational methods haven't solved in, in biology, surely it's got to have something to say in engineering and you know, simulation-based problems. And so we really started at that point and looking at investigating how that would actually work and, and what kind of advantages you would see. And we did some early tests on, on how you would do that. And we were seeing like speed ups of three or 400 times faster, which is big. And we said, okay, this works. And this can clearly work. Machine learning really has, you know, can really transform how we do simulation. And so we left our jobs and set up the company, having looked at the market and, and, and you know, how feasible our business is in that area. But you know, fundamentally, at its core, that's what we're doing. We're using machine learning in a, in a way that's orders of magnitude more efficient than the kind of numerical methods we use today for simulation. And, and by simulation, I mean things like fluid dynamics, so simulating aerodynamic airflow and surface pressures and in electromagnetics, you'll simulate like radar scattering or telecoms antenna design. All, all these methods in engineering are, you know, use these numerical methods that are today is a stereotypical high-performance computing application, you no know, supercomputing application. It's hugely expensive. Yeah. You know, we, we run, like, we, we, you know, they'll, they'll run on supercomputers and they can run for days or weeks even sometimes to simulate like a few hundred milliseconds of real time. And so what we're looking at with machine learning is really transforming that from hours down to seconds or minutes where it's almost like real-time simulation. It's capable of transforming that entire space. So that's like the core idea of what we're, we founded the company on. And then from that, there's a whole you know, raft of new advantages that we're discovering as we're developing and talking to customers and working with them. Who's the, the key targets for you? you know, how are you segmenting the, the marketplace? Are you focusing on specific industries? Yeah, definitely to start with. I mean, that's one thing we remind each other of constantly is like focus, right? And, and how do you get from zero to one? I mean, we started looking at electromagnetics. I mean, that's, you know, I had the physics background. Alan had the, he was doing a lot of radar scattering. So we thought that's where we did our initial validation studies and then realized that like for a startup, it doesn't, it's not a market we can get into easily. Like sure, there's a lot of money in, you know, 5G masts and, you know, defense, uh, stealth fighters and things like that. But it, it it didn't seem like a fast enough moving market that it was good for startups. So, I mean, what, what we kind of look for is is like something where we can find customers who are going to adopt new technology. So they're going to just try out new things. They're going to be able to spend money fast to not need like giant 12, 15, 18 month sales cycles. And ideally with like a bit of a incentive, like um, a competitive reason that they have to actually take on this new technology. So, you know, looking at the the market, we kind of settled on CFD, so fluid dynamics. Um, that's a mass, massive market used in climate, used in aerodynamics, used in battery technology, using energy. It's it's kind of crazy how how widely that's used. Um, but we, we kind of saw that automotive was like, you know, $600 million market within that. And then motorsport was in that, and we're kind of both F1 fans. So we thought, we thought, okay, well, that might be a good a good place to kind of start to focus, like really down on a tiny little segment, where as a startup we can kind of tick those boxes, right? We can 
get get basically talking to some of the the most hardcore users of these technologies, the most like difficult problems to solve. There's money in it, and they're likely to adopt new technology and try it out. And that is where we kind of we're focusing on. Yeah, I mean, I think as well as a startup, you're looking for early validation. So we, we say like early and often validation because you, you want to prove the technology works and you want to prove that you're building something that someone wants so you can actually prove out that market. Uh, and so the, like, the likes of Formula One team with that kind of rapid cycle of feedback and them trying new ideas out gives you that kind of early validation so that we know you know that what we're building is actually going to work and someone actually wants it and that helps you get off the ground from nothing to actually developing a product that someone's going to pay for yeah, and, and as Darren said that kind of focus really counts when you're starting off and because we could you know if you look at the whole umbrella of opportunity it is all the way from aerospace and space to automotive energy and even all the way to electromagnetics and you can even imagine mechanics and you know, and, and, and robotics and even game engines and, you know, with physics yeah. engines and games. It's just huge opportunity. You can't, you know, the idea of even doing multiple things is is just a non-starter. So, um, so that kind of focus down into one area where you get that rapid feedback, prove you can do it in one area is exactly what you need to get off the ground. It's what investors are looking for as well, that you can execute and you can prove both commercially and technically that, that what you're doing works. A question to close the gap in my knowledge, your approach, is it more like a platform play where you can just plug in data sources from customers or is it more bespoke and customized on a customer by customer basis? So it's it's more a tool, right? So we're, we, we don't want to be like consultants where we're actually solving the problems in aerodynamics. We are not aerodynamicists. You know? So we are, it's, it's building like a simulation tool that they can use. Yeah. And so they're the they're the experts in their field, but today they'll buy like a tool from a simulation tool from like yeah. one of the big incumbent companies uh, who have been selling these tools for years. Yeah. Um, and we are we are offering a you know a, a new tool that does different things to them, but it's also orders of magnitude faster as yeah. well with okay. the same. So it's we see ourselves very much as a platform play as a tool yeah. company where so we you can, are providing the whole. It, the whole solution rather than just like improving the data pipe and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, w one thing we don't want to do is, for example, so in their pipeline today, they'll have like a CAD system yeah. where they'll design the actual, and then they'll feed that into a simulation tool and then yeah. they'll have post-processing tools as well. We don't want to be building a CAD system. You right. know, they, that, that would be uh, no, a huge effort. Yeah, We want to be kind of a replacement for the actual simulation tools. Gotcha. Uh, and ultimately, we, we're doing more than just what the today's tools do because the the approach we are taking opens up new opportunities in terms of like design optimization, um, where you have the, the AI actually designing the part and you know, optimizing your designs in a way that you can't do it with today's tools. In terms of post processing and, and CAD systems, we don't want to be doing that. That would that would probably kill us. You know, that yeah. they've been around since the eighties. But fortunately, of course, they've been around since the 80s and the, the, their data interchange formats are very open So, mm. um, the, because all these tools can change. So it's, it's very easy for us to fit into that pipeline in terms yeah. of, as one tool because they all swap data with each other. So we've talked a little bit um, at the top of the podcast about how you've got yourself to Cambridge. How plugged in are you into the Cambridge ecosystem? So we're not like out at the university in Cambridge and we're, you know, we're, we might think of ourselves as not totally plugged in, but I think it's hard not to be plugged in. I think Cambridge is quite a small city 
Uh, and from my perspective, it has the tech companies, it has the university, and that's kind of all. And there's no large industries or other industries in the, in the city. And so when you know some people in Cambridge, you kind of know everyone in Cambridge. And it's, very, and it's hard not to... To be connected to everyone you know you're, you can be in the pub and be talking to PhDs in physics or tech founders or just engineers and when you know one person you, you know kind of everyone so it's really hard not to be plugged into and that's it's kind of what I love about Cambridge it's a really tight-knit network it's why I, I came back it's hard to not bump into someone randomly and then just get into some really deep geeky conversation about <laughs> whatever else it is and I wanted to come back to an earlier part of the conversation where you were explaining like you were self-taught on the on the tech side. We, we talk a lot about, you know, the kind of wealth divide in the city and opportunities for kids to break into the tech sector. Some of that feels difficult, you know, for kids that haven't had those opportunities. We're trying to do some stuff here at the Bradfield with, um, with tech educators. What would your advice be to someone that's kind of maybe listening to this or comes across this somehow, is sitting at home, would love to be in a startup, would love to build their own software, but just doesn't know where to start. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, the, the concept of being self-taught these days is almost the only way to learn. You know, there's there's a vast amount of resources out there that are free. I mean, I learned everything I learned for free um, going back, you know, 15 years. And, and that's easier to do today. I think with programming as well, it, it's really just about breaking down problems into smaller steps. And I think if you're interested in learning how to do that, how to how to think clearly, um, then you know you should learn how to program. And I think everyone should learn basic programming, uh, you know, at school or even just as a hobbyist. Mm. You know, I think you you can just learn to to solve simple problems for yourself. And if you find it really interesting, then you might actually sort of dig deeper, you yeah. know, and start branching out. I, I'd say the same for people that are software engineers that don't know AI do the same thing you know i think people who aren't engineers at all and they're interested in ai there's a huge amount of resources out there you know from hugging face to fast.ai they're probably good starting points just to have a play around with it because i think ultimately it it comes down to just tinkering mm. you know you you tinker and and then you get you find stuff doesn't work <laughs> or you can't quite do what you wanted to be able to do, and then you get deeper and deeper and deeper, um, and you can go as deep as you like. So I'd say like a comp side degree is like learning bottom up. You learn right. the fundamentals, the foundation, and then you learn everything on top. I, I very much learned a top-down approach. Oh. You know, learn to do stuff, be practical, and then you get more interested in the detail and the, the fundamentals. Oh, interesting. I, I think as well that the tech companies are open to any level of education as well. I think it's more about demonstrating what you know and being able to be a good problem solver yeah. that comes first before any education. If you're clever, you can learn on the job and you can learn what you need to learn to do the job. Mm. And tech companies are one of the industries that are very open to any level of education, I think, generally. Mm. Um, if you're a good problem solver and you can solve it, then you have the opportunity to get into it. It's also one thing that I think over the years, because it's historically been very male-dominated, very kind of white, going back 10, 20 years. It, it is kind of cool Like in the last few years, it is starting to actually shift. You know, you're starting to see the demographic change, which is kind of awesome, actually. It's still not entirely balanced, but it's it, it's definitely a different world today than it was even five years ago. Mm. We've covered so many things. It's a really been a really fascinating conversation. So thanks to you both. But to end with, I'd really like to find out from you 
what have you got coming up? What what are you most excited about? I think like AI is going to transform this world we're in in terms of how we do engineering, whether it's in just in speed and power and optimization. AI is going to transform it, and we want to be that company that's that is you know, transforming it. And that's that thing I was talking about in startups about changing the world and actually having an impact there. Yeah, and we, you know we're still pre-seed, right? So we're kind of building towards our kind of first products, solving CFD, you know, tens of thousands of times faster, uh, and and also like going towards branching out to multiple like multi-physics. So this is solving things like aeroelastics, like flexible wings or aerothermal, which is kind of very important for batteries and hybrid technologies and hydrogen fuel cells and things like that. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of heading towards this kind of like like we have foundational models of language. Uh, it, we're, I think both of us are very sure that it's going to happen, that we'll have foundational models of physics, you know, where where maths is the underlying language of these models, but, but similar kind of parallel to the, the large language models we have now. So. so in future, like AI will be designing our cars and our planes and they'll be more efficient for it. You know, and so when we talk about net zero and sustainability, these kind of efficiency drives will come out of this level of optimization that we're doing with, with that. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what shapes AI comes up with for our, for our cars will look like when they're designed by AI. Yeah. It's exciting times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Darren Allen. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.